Henry, hit the theme song. The theme song will have faded by this point, so this is anything beyond this. I was waiting for you to cut me off. I can't cut you off when you're having so much fun. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Anyways, welcome back to This Is Rocket Science. This should be episode five by now, right? Probably, yeah, five, four, six. No, because we, we did four. This we is, did this four. Is, this is five. This is five. And three is out. But this is a very special episode five. Oh, this is the most incredible episode. Henry got us an interview. Mm-hmm. One of many to come. So uh, who did you interview, Henry? So I interviewed Dr. David Kipping. I like uh, his first name, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, David, it's, it's a great first name. Um, Dr. David Kipping is a professor of astronomy here at Columbia. He's also a groundbreaking researcher. Uh, he is um, super into exoplanets, uh, in particular exomoons. Uh, and before we get into the actual interview, we're going to discuss a little bit about exoplanets, exomoons, to give you know everyone a baseline vocabulary so that we can understand the more technical parts of this interview. Sounds like a most perfect strategy. Obviously, most of us should know what exoplanets are. It's kind of inherent in the name. Mm -hmm. It's just any kind of planet that's orbiting a star that isn't our own sun. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you, you're not going to see one of these with your, with your own bare eye like you might see Jupiter or Mars. Mm -hmm. How do we detect these planets, Henry? So there's a, a few ways that we detect them, but the main way that's going to be relevant for this interview is what's called the transit method. Basically, uh, it's when you have a telescope, usually it's like a space-based telescope, something like Hubble, uh, the big one uh, is Kepler, and basically what you do is you point it at a star and you observe the luminosity of that star. And basically what you're looking for is a dip in the brightness of that star, and that would be uh, b because a planet has passed between you and the star. Uh, so we call it the transit method uh, because what you're observing is a transit. It's like a, a small eclipse. Um, and that is sort of what uh, Dr. David Kipping specializes in. Uh, it's very close to data science almost because what you're looking for is, you know, you have these, these vast files and you're looking for this tiny dip. Uh, so that's what David Kipping does. There's also, you know, in particular... He has this sort of niche, which is exomoons. So what he's trying to do is actually uh, discover moons around planets that are around other stars. Um, and for a while, this seemed like it was impossible from a technical standpoint. Uh, it's just um, people thought that the precision of our telescopes weren't good enough. Uh, but... Yeah, because how could you tell... You're looking at one small rock crossing a big ball of flame. Mm -hmm. How would you know if there's a slightly smaller rock next to it or not? Mm -hmm. I mean, usually when, uh, with the general transit method, when you're looking at planets, you could expect at most like a 1% dip in the brightness of the star. So then on top of that, you're like combing it for, uh, I, don't, I don't even know. David Kipping will explain way better in the interview what obviously. you're looking for, obviously. Um, but it's, it's really cool stuff, and he actually, if it's confirmed, will have discovered the first exomoon. Uh, later, 
uh, or last month he actually uh, discovered it. Uh, but it's still a candidate right now, but it's looking really promising. Uh, I don't know, what, what other background do you think people need? I think that's about it. We talk about the significance of discovery of planets and moons on other stars. Obviously, it's huge just for our knowledge, but mm-hmm. it offers us potential for expansion into the galaxy. And it sort of gives us, you know, when we, we had the asteroid episode, uh, we talked about how looking at asteroids would give us a good idea about the composition of our solar system. Well, looking at exoplanets, that gives us a good idea of the composition of our galaxy. Oh, that's um, true. And if we want to understand the universe more broadly, understanding the galaxy is a great place to start. Um, so exoplanets, exomoons, they're a really big deal. This guy's on the cutting edge of the research, and we got about 20 minutes with him. I guess another one that's important, too, is people are going to always ask about which planets are Earth-like. Mm, that's that's huge. Yeah, that's that's a really big deal. He's also, in fact, the first guy to discover an Earth-like planet. Of course so, he was. Of course he was. Here at Columbia. He got tired of finding more Earths. He said, we need to find some more moons. <laughs> Let's find some moons, yeah. All right, well, I think it's about time we get down to the interview. I wasn't present for the actual interview, but I am certain that Henry did a most amazing job without me. Obviously, October was the big exomoon uh, discovery. When do you think that you'll be able to get enough repeat observations so that you can confirm it's not a candidate, it's a real exomoon? Mm-hmm. When do you think that'll be, if ever? Yeah, um, that's a great question. We were hoping to reobserve it in May. May is the next transit we expect to see. Um, during that transit, we actually can predict where we think the moon should be in the observational data we acquired from Hubble that really drove our discovery paper, we see the planet transit, takes about 19 hours to transit, and then a few hours later you see the moon transit. So the moon appears to transit after the mm. planet, but of course every time you look the moon's going to be in a different position. So actually in May we have a prediction for where the moon should be. It should come before the planetary transit rather than afterwards. And if we were able to see that signature not only with the same shape and duration as before, but in the location where we predict it to be, I think we'd have a real slam dunk case that this is the real deal. Um, Now, how are we going to observe that? It is very challenging to observe from the ground because, as I said, the the transit of the planet lasts for 19 hours. That's longer than any night on Earth, unless you're, I guess, like in Antarctica or something. and we don't really have great, great observatories at those extreme conditions. So really, space is your only uh, serious option for capturing at least the whole event. Um, we applied for Hubble time, and we just found out uh, a few days ago that we did not get that Hubble time, mm. along with um, pretty much all of my exoplanet colleagues, actually. So I think there are pretty much zero exoplanet proposals that were accepted during this last HST call. I have no idea what happened. That's very unusual normally it's like 25 percent of the time goes to exoplanets um and a lot of my colleagues are kind of like you know kind of complaining about this right now but whatever it is what it is um so we're not going to get that transit from hubble the kepler is done it's uh it's no longer able to observe uh tess is not scheduled to be observing that field at the right time hmm. uh, so that really only leaves you with one other telescope that's suitable and that's spitzer spitzer is an earth trailing orbit um, it could observe this field. Spitzer is due to run out of funding in March. Um, there is no more funding in theory after that point. 
um, but I'm hearing rumors that, for, that it will be extended with yet again another sort of makeshift pot of money for just to continue it a few more months. So if we, if we can get the, if it gets funding to continue into May, then we will uh, hopefully apply for spits of time, get the spits of time and be able to maybe see it there. Spits is definitely not as suitable an observatory as Hubble. It's, um, the, the data quality just isn't comparable to what you get with Hubble. So it's probably not gonna be as clean a signature but um, nevertheless, it might be enough if we can see just a hint of it in the right place to sort of verify our hypothesis. So that'd be right before the full transit, you'd see the moon? Yeah, I mean, we don't have 100% confidence on that. About 80% of our models require the moon to come into transit before the planet. But there's a, a small fraction of cases where it doesn't. Um, but if we, if we saw it come in before the transit, uh, I think that would be a very strong piece of evidence that this is the real deal. So are you going to get to name it if it's <laughs> confirmed? That was I talked to um, uh, people in CSI could submit questions mm -hmm. to these types of interviews. And one of the ones was, are you going to get to name it? Uh, yeah. They wanted to sort of um, see if there could be an open poll on the Internet, because that's not a terrible idea yeah. to see who well, could name an exomoon. Maybe not. I mean, people already do that for planets. I think already the, um, the first 100 exoplanets that were discovered have now all been renamed, essentially, from their license plate numbers to, um, you know, characters from Star Trek and all sorts of weird stuff. So yeah, it was done by popular vote. Um, yeah, naming's an interesting one. I mean, people have also asked me not just about whether the object itself should have a name, but what? How do you classify it? Is it a moon, or is it a binary planet? Like, what? What is the correct? I guess so, because it. it was like a Neptune-sized moon, Jupiter-sized planet. Yeah. So at what point? Exactly. So it seems if it's a Neptune-sized moon, surely that's really another planet rather than rather than a moon. Um, and unfortunately, unlike the the case of a planet, there is a very clear definition of what a planet is from the IAU. Um, but there does does not exist a clear definition of what a moon is or versus a binary planet. A popular definition is the center of mass. If the center of mass is inside the planet, between the two objects, then that's a moon. If it's outside, then it's more like a binary planet. It's like two objects on a seesaw and the, the pivot points in between them. Um, so the Earth-Moon system is a, is a, a planet-Moon system by that definition. But I think Pluto-Charon would be a binary planet if it were still a planet, which it's not. <laughs> so I don't know what... It's a binary, binary dwarf, dwarf planet. planet? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, but to be honest, to come back to your original question, uh, I... I don't have that much interest personally in the issue of naming it's the science that I find interesting it's not this debate about nomenclature and taxonomy and what this thing should be called but if it's a way of getting people excited about science then fine go ahead I'm, I'm happy to do it but it's not something I'm going to waste a lot of my own breath arguing either way about because uh, a rose is a rose by any name is still still a sweet it really doesn't matter mm. what you call it um, but uh, if if it gets people interested and in, in talking, then sure, let's make it a debate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as much as I love Kepler, like looking at the names of some exoplanets, having them all start with Kepler and then like four numbers, like it, I find it fine, but there's a yeah. lot of people who sort of get bored of the naming scheme. I don't know. But like well, you said, it doesn't really matter. The Kepler names had an interesting history because uh, when they first started observing the sky, 
there was three planets that were already known in their field, three transiting planets, uh, Trace 2b, Hat P7b, and Hat P11b. And those names come from the surveys which discovered them, mm. which has been a historical thing going on for a long time. So there was a Hat survey, Hat P7, Hat P11, and then there was the Trace survey. Um, but what Kepler did that was very controversial is they renamed them. They called them Kepler 123. And the hat guys got really upset and the trace guy got upset. He was like, you know, come on, we, we called that planet this name and you've just sort of overridden our name and called it something else. Um, but Kepler, I guess, wanted to do it because they wanted to have like this uniform, homogeneous cataloging Boring. system. Yeah, uh, they had like the Borg mentality that everything has to be exactly indexed. Um, so, yeah, you do kind of lose some of the flavor and, uh, and um, it's not as memorable. <laughs> like Kepler 1213B or something. But uh, it definitely makes it easier if you're searching through a catalog. It yeah, has some yeah. advantages having some kind of catalog system like that. So one thing that I want people listening to this podcast to know about is your YouTube channel, mm -hmm. the Cool Worlds Lab YouTube channel. Really great. Uh, one thing... I think it does really well is you bring on people like yourself and other real researchers uh, doing real work in astronomy to talk about ideas that they're working on right now. Mm -hmm. So first of all, how do you find the time to do that? I mean, like when I look at the research papers that you put out and then all these videos that you're editing, putting up, how do you do that? And also, why do you think it's important? Yeah, um, great questions. It's, it is hard to find the time, but uh, as with anything, it depends on what your priorities are. If you know, if if you want to um, really do something and it's important to you, then you will make the time. It doesn't really matter how busy you are. You can always find a little extra time in your week to eke it out. Um, but that does mean sometimes I come here at weekends and I have to film it on a Saturday and on a Thursday night after the kids go to bed, I'm writing scripts to to film the next day. So it's definitely uh, feels like an extra thing that I do that is not. Um, is not necessarily part of my remit as a professor here. It's not something that most research schools actually particularly reward. They don't really uh, think that outreach is a particularly important component of their programs. I think Columbia's a bit different. I think here uh, we've always had actually a strong history of doing outreach in the astronomy department. And when I actually applied here as a faculty member, I made that clear that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to do a YouTube channel. And um, that was always my one of my you know, main arguments as to the sorts of things that I would do here. I wanted to set up a program to try and detect exomoons. I wanted to think about novel ways of characterizing exoplanets. Um, I wanted to build a group and mentor the next generation of scientists. And I wanted to communicate our passion for astronomy through an online presence such as YouTube. Um, I think YouTube is a great way of doing this. Um, I often tell people like my inspiration was because I was watching a lot of videos in bed, five minute YouTube videos before I went to sleep. And it was just nonsense. It was just like the review of the latest Game of Thrones episode or something like that. And I just thought, well, you know, these videos, when you look at how many hits they're getting, it's in the, of course, Game of Thrones is a massive show. So that's yeah. probably why, but they get <laughs> even, even like random shows get huge amounts of, you know, videos made about them on YouTube. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could tap into that um, and just have, a, a five minute video is appealing. Often we actually go above five minutes these days, but uh, a short video is appealing you because- You had like an hour long live stream. Like yeah, yeah, live streams are a bit different. Yeah. A, a, we were kind of experimenting with that recently, but um, 
in principle, a short video is appealing because unlike a public talk, we do public talks here, I'm giving, actually giving one on Friday, um, you have to be pretty keen about astronomy to, to spend your Friday night coming out to Columbia, you know, getting on the train, getting on the subway, come out of your apartment, sitting down, listen to a lecture. You don't know if you're going to enjoy it or not. You can't really walk out the room halfway through. It looks weird. So there's like a big commitment there. And really that only brings in people who already know that they love astronomy. Mm. And I wanted to reach the other audience, the people who didn't necessarily know yet if they loved astronomy. Um, and to give them a, a, an insight into what it's like to do research, um, to try and communicate our passion for it, because I really get excited about the projects we work on. Uh, I thought if we could bring that across in the videos, um, it might help to show people what it's really like to be an astronomer. And um, ultimately, it's been a it's been a really rewarding experience. We've I've had letters from uh, many undergraduates from other universities who have written to me saying, "Love the videos you guys do. Such one of the reasons I'm applying to Columbia to your program." Um, and uh, I'm hoping that that continues to to grow and be not only a way of recruiting, which it never was intended to be. Um, new students, but also you know, inspiring younger people to think about becoming uh, interested in the field as well. Well, I think you've done a really good job. Thanks. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we learn every day. Every day we we figure out we screwed something up with the sound or didn't communicate something quite right. Um, it's an iterative process, much like teaching, much like research. What was your reaction to the death of Kepler? Because it's been like, in I know in exoplanet astronomy, Kepler has been like one of the I don't, I don't know what the proper wording is, but like it, it completely transformed how you discovered exoplanets mm. because there was this whole, um, there was the radial velocity method, yeah. which people used way more than the transit method before Kepler. Mm -hmm. And then after Kepler, it's like you look at the ratio of transit to radial velocity and it's crazy mm -hmm. how quickly that took off. So now not having Kepler, is that weird? Like, Yeah, it is. Um, it's definitely kind of a sad moment when Kepler finally ran out of fuel, especially because I think it really, I think probably the best legacy of Kepler is not really the planets it found, but the fact it trained so many of the leaders of the exoplanet field today. And, you know, and I think I'm included in that bracket, that we learned by downloading the first few months of Kepler data, figuring out what was going on, starting to see interesting signals, and then being blown away by the precision and then that inspired us to think about all of the wonderful science that maybe we could do with a mission like that so it sort of opened the door to giving us the license to think about things like exomoons the license to think about um, looking for rings around planets or trying to measure the um, radius of a planet to one percent precision so that you can really understand the composition of those worlds um, and you know we didn't have any access to that kind of information before kepler so, of course, uh, the number of planets uh, it found is very useful. It's taught us a lot. Um, but I, I really think that the people and the community and the enthusiasm it's, it's earned in the public are the uh, major valuable products in a way, because we'll always find new planets. Um, but having the people who have been trained through that mission to know how to do that means that I feel really good about TESS. TESS is just... A, is just starting to observe right now. It's getting its first few months of data. And many of the people who are running tests have come from Kepler and been trained with Kepler. So we're not gonna have that same giant learning curve that we had with Kepler. Um, it has been an extraordinary mission. 
it's um, in some ways it was a huge success. It also actually had some failures. I mean, its primary mission was to measure the frequency of Earth-like planets. And it didn't really do that, actually. Um, unfortunately, it detected, it has zero examples of an Earth around a sun-like star. So I guess you have an upper limit from that. But uh, people uh, still have a lot of disagreement about what that upper limit number is. Some people will say, it's, you know, the fraction is one in three. Other people say it's more like 1%. And uh, the challenge is because if you have zero detections, it's an extrapolation. You're just sort of mm -hmm. looking at the trends in the data and trying to guess what's going on in that missing box. Um, is that so just because of the bias towards hot Jupiters? Is that just... In in, yeah, I mean, of course, it's definitely easier to detect close-in planets and large planets. Um, but Kepler knew that going in. It was engineered to, to overcome that difficulty. Um, one of the challenges was we didn't know how active stars were. We thought the sun was typical. The sun, it was looking at sun-like stars, uh, stars which are FGK type, and we used the sun as a proxy for how active stars should be. And no other photometer had ever observed stars at the precision Kepler intended to do it, at you know, parts per million level. So we just didn't know how active stars were at that level of precision. And it turns out the sun is unusually quiet. <laughs> the, the, the model we used for the sun, which was about a 10 ppm, 10 parts per million baseline of activity level, is unusually small. And most stars are more active than that, which means that if you want to find an Earth-like planet, four years of data isn't going to cut it. You actually have to look for longer to overcome that noise barrier. And Kepler just didn't know that before it started flying. And that's impeded its ability to find Earth-like planets. Had we had had Kepler stare at the same stars, had it had not lost a, a second reaction wheel, then it actually could have stared at the same field for, I mean, it was about eight years altogether it ran for. And then it, I, I'm pretty sure it would have found, my bet is it would have found Earth-like planets after that, after that time period. Uh, by beating down the signal, you know, beating up the signal to noise even. But uh, unfortunately, it wasn't to be. So we'll see. Maybe uh, Plato in the future might do it, or uh, I suppose there's a, there's a distant chance Tess might be able to pull it off. But um, that was one of the failures. But of course, there's many, 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 many successes <laughs> to, yeah. to talk about as well with Kepler. With, so with Kepler dead, uh, with Hubble sort of teetering or on the decline, I guess, after 20 years, do you think that the James Webb Space Telescope will be an adequate replacement for both of them, or is that unrealistic? Yeah, it's certainly not a replacement to Kepler. Um, James Webb is a, you know, an all-purpose telescope that the whole community will be able to propose for, much like Hubble. So it really is a successor to Hubble in that sense. But Hubble does not spend all of its time looking at exoplanets. And as I said, actually, this cycle, we got 0% of the time to look at exoplanets, let alone even a small fraction. Um, so it's, you know, we're hoping to get a, you know, something like 20, 25% of the James Webb time to, to do exoplanet work. But it's such an expensive mission. It's a $10 billion mission that you're going to have to have a very competitive proposal to win time. And if my proposal is, I want to look at this star and I have no idea if it has a planet, but I just want to stare at it for a few, you know, for a few weeks to yeah. see if anything pops up. There's no way you're going to get time to do that. So you can't do high risk science with James Webb. Anything high risk, they can't afford to do. And that's a shame because you always, you know, it's the high risk stuff, which ultimately gives you the highest reward back. Um, so that that's a conundrum that the James Webb Space Telescope faces. Um, in the future, we're hoping 
to have more observatories in the sky and of course um, improve our ground-based facilities as well. Uh, in my group we're particularly interested in planets which are at wide separations from their star. Uh, that's why we call it the Cool Worlds Lab, right? Plants which are cold, away from their star. And um, I that, had no idea that was, <laughs> that was just cool. Yeah, worlds. we've never really articulated that in, in a video or anything, but that, that's the motivation. Um, mostly because those plants are, you know, in the habitable zones, they could have life. They're far enough from their star that they could have moons and rings and all sorts of interesting things. Um, so that's sort of our driver. And for that, you really need a space based observatory. I'm excited about the potential of CubeSats in the future to maybe offer us additional windows and eyes on these uh, types of objects. Um, there's the Cheops mission coming up soon from the Europeans. There's Plato on the horizon, again from ESA. And uh, TESS could fly for a long time, you know, up to 10 years potentially, mm. assuming it doesn't have any gyro problems like <laughs> has plagued NASA's recent missions. Um, but assuming assuming that goes to plan, we, you know, we should have... Uh, we should have continuous monitoring uh, of these plants in the future. And um, the more we have, the better, I think. So you're also a professor here. Mm -hmm. So um, this is sort of a generic question, but do you have a favorite class to teach? Yeah, um, I probably have a soft spot for the class I developed, which is astrostatistics. Mm -hmm. um, that's a 3000 level class. And uh, I like that because I really get to know the students. It's a small enough class, you know, typically like a dozen students that you feel like you really get to build a rapport with them. And it's very project-based. In fact, we do one class which is more like a lecture and then the next class is just hacking on, on their projects together. Uh, there's no exams. It's all, everything's graded based off basically the coursework from the class. And um, in that sense, it mimics research a bit more. And... Uh, I often end up writing letters of recommendation for the students when they apply for graduate school. So I like that because I feel like I actually get to um, know some of the majors a bit, you know, a bit better. I'm teaching next semester another Earth. I also really enjoy that, but it's more of a mixed bag because you have an, it's an intro level class. So there's always some students who are just overwhelmingly excited and into the material. And then there's always some students who are, are taking it maybe not for the right reasons. Um, and uh, I try to use that as an opportunity to sell to them why they should care about astronomy. Like, I know you don't want to be here, but I've got your ear, so let me try and at least give while you a here. sense as to why yeah. I care about this. Um, but uh, it's unclear how effective that is, to be honest. But uh, that's kind of a, that, that is a fun class because you get a, you get a much more uh, diverse range of uh, personalities and uh, character types arriving in their class like that. So I, that's also a lot of fun. So I was talking earlier before the podcast about how I saw, this was actually in a video that you put together, I think recently for the Cool Worlds YouTube channel, mm -hmm. where you were essentially um, talking about how uh, early in your career, you're almost laughed at for talking about exomoons, <laughs> yeah. um, just because people thought it was impossible, there's no way. And now you're on the cover of magazines. Well, uh, me, but, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> exomoons, yeah. yeah. Your ideas, your, your research. Uh, do you have any stories from your career that you would like to share to people maybe motivation to help people get past being laughed at for their ideas mm, yeah i mean i guess um maybe i said touched on this in the video but i'll sort of repeat it and add some elements which i often describe when i when i give a colloquium about exomoons especially if it has a lot of young people in the audience 
And that's the, yeah, yes, when I first started out in this, it was fringe, to be honest with you. It wasn't like fringe as, as in like looking for aliens fringe, but it was definitely on the outskirts of mainstream uh, exoplanet work. And a lot of people told me that it's very high risk, may not lead to success. What do you have afterwards? You're just going to uh, have to leave academia if you don't discover an exomoon. Um, and I didn't, I didn't worry about that too much. To me, it was always uh, such an exciting and interesting question um, that in a way that was enough. My passion for the, for the subject I was working on was so strong that it carried me through any of those storms of, as to people being negative about it. So I think maybe the first piece of advice is just find something you really love doing, whatever it is, because um, at the end of the day, I mean, Steve Jobs often has some kind of often quoted uh, saying about this that, you know, to be successful, you have to basically be kind of crazy and in love with what you're doing. Um, and it's kind of the true in academia that if you really do find something you really love, you will work at it much harder and deeper than anyone else because it's your passion, it's your hobby in a way. And I was doing, I was thinking about exo means in my sleep almost at a certain point. And it was, it, to me, it was almost as much fun as playing like an Xbox game or watching TV. It was, you know, it was recreational to me to actually think about the idea of looking for these planets and moons out there. Um, and then the other thing is that, you know, in hindsight, looking back at that journey, um, in order to detect something very ambitious or to achieve a very ambitious goal in general, you have to acquire all of these skills to do that. Now, I started out really as a modeler, I would say. I started uh, thinking about the dynamics. I wrote down equations for the type of signatures we might see. But I didn't know any statistics. Um, I never took a statistics class at college. Um, I didn't know anything. I'd never used a telescope. Because um, uh, at Cambridge, where I did my undergraduate degree, that just wasn't—it was just a purely theoretical degree—and uh, I didn't really know anything about instrumentation or anything like this. So, all of that I had to teach myself. And um, not only did I have to teach myself it, I had to do it at a level above everybody else, which is kind of crazy. Because to look for exo means you're looking for a signal that's smaller than the planets that Kepler was designed to even look for. So you're you're trying to interrogate the data at a level that has not been done. So um, that forced me to sort of become a master of those arenas and even though it was never my intention to become a master of you know astrostatistics or something um, it just sort of happened as a byproduct of having this very ambitious goal and then even though when I applied for a faculty job here I didn't have any moon to my name it didn't matter because I think I had been recognized by that point as one of the leaders in the, even the treatment of data techniques, the analysis of um, trends in, in, in these kind of photometric time series, and ultimately had advanced the field dramatically in spite of the fact it hadn't actually led to a success. So, and of course along the way we actually discovered many planets that, <laughs> I mean we've discovered the first Earth mass planet, transiting planet in our survey. And that was to us was a false positive. That was a very big result. We discovered the first planet using the transit timing method from our survey. Um, that again was a false positive for us, but you know was another huge result uh, in terms of the field. So uh, you never know if you have a super ambitious goal. Not only will you acquire all of these skills, but the journey itself you will you will find so many interesting things along the way that um, it will be um, it will be worth that journey in you know, tenfold worth that journey. And that ambitious goal will keep you motivated all the way. 
Whereas if you have some kind of low level goal and somebody scoops you to it, you'll just lose your motivation straight out the window. But I, that's why I like having like super ambitious, bold plans. And uh, you kind of think in the back of your mind, maybe it will never really happen, but I'm always gonna shoot for it. And uh, along the way, who knows where it's gonna take me. I think that's a perfect way to end the podcast, honestly. <laughs> I was going to ask another question, but I think that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is Rocket Science's The Columbia Space Initiative podcast, featuring guest star Dr. David Kipping, produced by Henry Manelski and David Tibbetts, executive producer Milan Anand, creative director Elise Palma, audio is by Michael Weiss.